Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, teach our hearts this day and inspire our lips to share the good news. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Here are these words. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. <clears throat> so also the one who had two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid the master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold came also. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will, be, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid the gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold <clears throat> from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has been given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even that they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God for the people of God. before um, I begin the sermon, I uh, wanted to share with you, um, General Conference 2019 happened last week, uh, denominational, international gathering of denominational leaders. Um, there was much conversation before about it, uh, that there would be changes in the way that we do church. 
Uh, I want to assure you that following General Conference 2019, most of the major stances that the United Methodist Church remains the same. Um, there, um, there was an adoption of the traditional plan, uh, but only seven of the 13 petitions that made up that plan uh, were ruled constitutional. Um, the things that have changed um, are some enforcement and accountability around who can be married and who can be ordained. Uh, most of these issues are around um, uh, LGBT issues. Um, I, I want to assure you that the United Methodist Church remains a place where we welcome all. You remember there's those kind of two stances that are joined together. One is that um, we do not um, ordain uh, self-avowed practicing uh, homosexuals and lesbians, and we also uh, do not do same-sex weddings. But we uh, believe that all people are of sacred worth. Uh, we believe that um, rights and privileges um, uh, in same-sex weddings um, should be uh, the same as those in heterosexual weddings. So access to um, health care, to the hospital room at the time of dying, uh, to benefits, those types of uh, privileges uh, that are under the federal law, federal law we believe um, should continue to be extended. Um, I want to assure you that what the United Methodist Church has been doing for the last you know, 20, 30 years continues to be what the United Methodist Church is going to be doing. Um, I also want to say that I've spoken to Josh uh, Lemons um, as a pastoral staff. Uh, we continue to support the Book of Discipline. Um, when you think about the Book of Discipline, right, our polity is such that we come together in Christian conference every four years. Um, if Josh and I were to say we do no longer support the Book of Discipline, that's like um, saying that we no longer support the document um, that affirmed our call and ordained us uh, to ministry. Um, if you have questions or concerns about your church or about the denomination, I really do welcome you uh, to reach out with an email or a text or stop by the church office. Um, I would love to have a cup of coffee and talk about um, your thoughts, uh, your feelings. Um, if you'd like to read up before having a cup of coffee, uh, you can go to the conference website, uh, txcumc.org, or search for Texas Annual Conference. Go to the bishop's corner, and the bishop has a number of documents that outline what, outline what happened. Um, we are still in kind of a judicial uh, court decision period. Um, what happened at General Conference will be evaluated by the Judicial Council, um, which is kind of like the Supreme Court for the denomination. Um, and that happens end of April. And I'll be sure to let you know at that time um, if and what changes uh, in the life of the church. This is our last sermon on the brink of everything. I still find it quite humorous that um, Josh and I were not looking at the calendar for General Conference when we decided to end the Sunday after General Conference, the sermon series called On the Brink of Everything. Kind of felt like we've been on the brink of everything. You don't have to laugh. It's really just a joke for Josh and I. But I wonder, what are you most proud of? Today we talk about the weight of our decisions, the, the gravity of our vows. What are you really proud of? What did you begin with the end in mind? Now, for some of you, it, it may be the number of years that you've been in wedded bliss. It may be the number of children that you've raised. It might be that fifth grade uh, perfect attendance award that you got for Sunday school way back in the day. I don't know. What are you most proud of? What is that thing that you began with the end in mind? 
you know, what's powerful about those vows and decisions that we make um, is that uh, sometimes we are the benefactor of someone else's choice to keep a commitment and a vow. Um, this morning I wore my robe, uh, but then proceeded, you know, because of the weather to sweat profusely, which is very hard to feel, you know, ministerial as you're serving communion and trying really hard not to go whoosh. Um, so, um, so this robe, uh, this stole, um, is one of those weighty decisions. Um, not that I chose to get ordained, but rather that my mentor, uh, campus minister, when I was discerning my call, uh, who really supported me throughout my ministry, um, that a few years ago, after he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, and about the time that he could tell that his speech was, uh, you know, that he was unable to speak clearly, he invited me to his house for a cup of coffee. Uh, we spent the day together. Um, he affirmed me for um, my ministry and my call, um, and he gave me um, this stole, uh, which was uh, his uh, for all of his ministry. Um, I affirm the fact that sometimes when we have weight to our decisions, others benefit from that. I benefited from his mentorship. I want to tell you a humorous story real quick about someone who began with the end in mind. Now, at annual conference every year, we uh, celebrate those who retire from ministry. Now, way back in the day before there was um, fanciness like uh, Facebook videos and all, um, they wouldn't videotape the retirees and play them throughout annual conference. They would line up all of the retirees for a particular service and pass the microphone down, giving them an open mic opportunity to say whatever they wanted to. Now, some of the men, because if you go really far back, it was before we were ordaining uh, women, but we ordain women now, uh, they would bring their wives up. And it was kind of this, your reward for being married to a pastor and being in a parsonage for over 40 years was open mic. Well, there's this uh, one gentleman um, who started his open mic moment, and I want to remind you that um, we no longer get to do this. It might be because of him. Um, and he said in his retirement address, he turned to Bishop Huey and he said, Bishop, I want you to know that the shoes that I am wearing right now, I also wore 40 years ago on the day that I was ordained into the Methodist ministry. And the bishop nodded. And he says, and I want you to know the suit coat and the suit pants that I'm wearing, they're the same that I was wearing 40 years ago on the day that I was ordained. And Bishop Huey went, mm-hmm. He went on to say that the tie and the shirt that I'm wearing 40 years ago, same tie, same shirt, when I was ordained. Bishop Huey didn't really acknowledge that one. <laughs> He said, Bishop, I want you to know that my socks, my undershirt, and my, and the bishop said, that'll be enough. Yeah. <laughs> you got the impression, guy's name was Gideon. Um, Gideon started with the end in mind. He knew that when he was at the end of his career, he wanted to have that outfit to wear so that he could tell the conference about it. And boy, howdy, was he remembered. <laughs> I hope that your answer to what are you most proud of might be different uh, than Pastor Gideon. 
Our scripture tells a story about making a difference, about the weight of our decisions. I want to say that the Gospel of Matthew is a little bit of an outlier when you look at all of the Gospels together, because Matthew likes to tell these stories of apocalyptic importance. He likes this end of time where let's talk about judgment and the last days. You can kind of smell a little sulfur as you're reading these stories. The parable of the talents is one of them. Uh, Matthew likes to tell these stories. Uh, he, he likes a little bit of weeping and gnashing of teeth, just a little bit, and occasionally uh, getting kicked out of a wedding feast. This runs contrary to our modern idea of faith and church. We like the cozy, warm glow of stained glass windows. We like the comfort of padded seats. But Matthew wants to remind us that what we do matters. Uh, Matthew tells a story of um, the parable of the talents, which I'm imagining some of you learned in Vacation Bible School when you were little bitty. Maybe a, uh, that flannel board that had the stick-up stories as you learned about the importance of saving and interest and investments. Seems like a strange story for a Bible story. You probably learned about how the ones who risked and the ones that worked hard were rewarded by the master. Um, well done, good and trustworthy servant. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. It, most of us like um, that nice uh, first half of the parable of the talents. Um, th there's a good gift. There's a good master. There's great trust. And there's a reward at the end. But the second half of the parable of the talents is a little bit more different. Uh, fully one half of the verses of the parable of the talents is only about the last servant. You know, that last servant who took his one talent and buried it in the ground. The Greek actually says deposited it in the ground, which I think is ironic because the master then tells later, at least you could have deposited it with the bankers. And um, so we begin to focus on not a, a good gift and a trustworthy servant and a master who's generous, but rather we focus on a useless slave, an outer darkness, and a wailing and gnashing of teeth. In fact, that last set of verses that talks about um, the uh, last servant so then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you are a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now, for some of you who are not biblical scholars, the talent that we're talking about is not the, the talent, and the, the translation is interesting, the bag of gold. I really like talent instead of bag of gold. But anyways, um, the talent that we talk about is not the talent that Glenda has when she plays the piano beautifully, or the talent that John Taylor has when he plays the guitar. The talent that we're talking about is really a coin, a huge coin. A coin that had the value of either a day's worth of, I'm sorry, a year's worth of wages or a lifetime's wages for a common laborer. D do you get the impression that this isn't just a small bag of gold, but this is a huge sum? And for a master to entrust that to a slave, that's really the better telling as opposed to a person or a servant. So imagine the biggest amount of money you could imagine 
and multiply it by five, or, or two, or just that unimaginable number. That's what the servants had to deal with. The master was going away, who knows where, maybe on vacation, and he was trusting the economic growth of his property to these three servants. I wonder how you would think about that. If your boss entrusted an, un, an amazing amount of money for you to be responsible for, it's hard for me to think about how much money that actually is. It's hard for me to not imagine that I would be excited. I mean, if my boss came to me and said, here, Peter, I will give you five times the largest sum of money you could imagine, I would go, oh my goodness, the boss really thinks I'm it. I'm good. I'm on easy street. All I got to do is work hard for the boss. But the boss clearly trusts me with so much. Did you notice that the motivation of the third servant is different? In fact, the first and the second servant, if you look at those verses uh, in the Bible uh, later afterwards, or maybe even right now, cracking your Bible during a sermon, not a bad thing. If you look at those verses, first servant, second servant, identical dialogue. It's almost like Matthew says, these are the good ones. Nothing to see here. Come on and look at the last one, though. That last servant, instead of, instead of trust and excitement, that third servant gets suspicion and a little bit of anxiety. He gets this idea of a scarcity of resources and that somehow the master has it out for him. You've had these moments when, you know, in the Methodist way, if you're not present for a committee, you oftentimes are elected chair. That's never happened to you. <laughs> or you've had those moments when it's, it's like everybody's lined up and they say, who wants to do this? And everybody takes a step backwards except for you. And it looks like you stepped forward. Yeah, I mean, why isn't that people, when they walk out of the organizing committee meeting for the capital campaign, that they don't go, woohoo! I'm in charge of raising all that money. It's strange, right? Motivations are different. When we look at John Wesley's words in his notes on the New Testament following the same passage, um, John Wesley says, uh, he quotes, he says, I, I knew thou art a hard man. Right? That's what the last servant says. And John Wesley says, no, thou knowest him not. He never knew God, that servant, who thinks him a hard master, reaping where thou hast not sown. That is, John Wesley says, requiring more of us than hast given us power to perform. John Wesley goes on to say that the difference between the first two servants and the last one is that for the sake of harmlessness, the third, ser the third servant finds himself in damnation. For the sake of harmlessness, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried just to walk the line, right? I'm, I'm not going to take the bait from anybody. I'm going to keep the blinders on. I'm not going to go with the extremes of right or left or anything else. I'm just going to try to get through without harming myself or others. But when you risk not, you gain not. When you're not willing to sacrifice something for what you believe in, right? When we bury what we have 
for fear that the master has tried to trick us, then we have brought suspicion into a story that only had encouragement and trust. I think it's interesting that here uh, Wesley talks about harmlessness. When um, we're, those of you who are you know, good Methodist um, or who have been ordained, um, we know there are the three general rules. Do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with God. Do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with God. You see that, that last servant, that harmlessness, kind of misses two-thirds of the general rules. When we, when we try to be harmless to ourselves and others, we miss the opportunity to do all the good we can. We miss the opportunity to stay in love with God. So, thinking about uh, this large amount of money, I wonder if the metaphor for the parable of the talents is more a metaphor about God's grace extended to us in the beginning of our discipleship. You know, this idea of, of a number of money uh, far greater than we could ever imagine. Is that a good way to think about grace? Grace upon grace. That when the servants are given that money, it's not to catch them or trick them or fake them out. But it's the boss, the master saying, I love you. You are my child. You're the best things I have going on. Here, take this amazing amount of love and grace and go do with it. But that third servant didn't get that memo. That third servant got a memo about anxiety, about uh, terror, about fear. I have always had a hard time Understanding people who are pessimistic about their commitments. I just have to say it. I, I uh, have always said that I honor the vows that I made and the order that I made them. And so, yes, I go home at night, uh, I especially did this when I was younger uh, in ministry. I would leave a perfectly good church meeting in the middle of it, stand up as I walk out and say, there are many people who can do the finance meeting, but there's only one guy called Dad to Grace who can read the bedtime story. I honor the vows I make in the order that I made them. I honored, uh, I, I vowed to uh, build a family with Amy before I uh, told the church I'd be an ordained pastor. The weight of our decisions, the gravity of our vows, I have a hard time understanding why people are pessimistic about their commitments. Like the habit of some men who, when you get them off among men without their wives around, will tell jokes about their wives, about their lack of compassion, or their willingness to spend all of the money, or whatever that is, that fun joke that we tell about our wives. I never understood that. Never understood why some uh, parents, when you get them off away from their children, will ruthlessly make fun of their children about simple mistakes that maybe parents are supposed to help kids learn about as they grow up. I never understood that. And I have to be honest, I, I don't understand folk who join church and begrudgingly try to carry out the details. I don't understand why people come to church for duty uh, or out of a sense of responsibility with no joy in it. I think when we think about the weight of our decisions, what is it about us that thinks that um, marriage, parenthood, or discipleship is a master who's trying to catch us when we're doing wrong? What is it about the anxiety and the uh, lack of trust, the suspicion that comes 
I sometimes think if we were to live into the weight of our decisions, the, the vows that we have available to us, that we might find joy, unbelievable joy in them, much like the two servants who were given an amazing amount of money right before they were asked to take care of it. I'm not sure about you. Uh, maybe there's more that I can understand um, out, outside of that sense of duty or fear. In a lot of ways, I think the difference between the first two servants and the last servant was just a failure to recognize what was happening. I think the first two servants get it. The master loves me, trusts me, wants me to succeed. The third servant just can't see it. One way to think about this is that uh, C.S. Lewis tells in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan the lion, who's kind of a god figure, and the children, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter, as they walk into the new Narnia, which is kind of like a metaphor for heaven. And everything is beautiful and new, just like you'd expect heaven to be. And as the kids walk around, they're amazed at this new heaven, this place that they get to be in with great joy. Until they walk up upon, and I said this this morning, not very clearly, they walk upon a group of dwarves, D-W-A-R-V-E-S, not doors. I didn't pronounce well, and so someone had the image of a number of doors walking around. Anyways, <laughs> so um, the kids come upon these dwarves who are huddling and cold together. As they listen to these dwarves, they say, we are stuck in this barn it is cold and horrible. But the kids look and there's no barn. They're sitting in the heaven. What's wrong? And so Lucy says to Aslan, can you do anything? Help them to understand the joy that's here. And Aslan replies, dearest Lucy, I will show you what I can do and what I cannot do. And so Aslan shakes his mane of, uh, you know, golden mane um, of lion hair. That was probably my most... Um, our uh, poetic sentence ever. Um, and the, the dwarves all of a sudden have a plate of food, a feast, a sumptuous feast in front of them. Each dwarf is given a plate heaped with juicy meats, glistening vegetables, plump grains of rice. Each has a goblet brimming with the finest wine anyone could ever imagine. And as the dwarves dive in to eat this amazing feast, they begin to gag and choke and cough. And as the children listen to the dwarves, they say, the dwarves say, doesn't this beat all? Not only are we in this stinking barn, but now we've got to eat hay and dried cow dung as well. When they sip the wine, they sputter. And look at this now, dirty water out of a donkey's trough. The dwarves, Aslan goes on to say, had chosen suspicion instead of trust and love. They were prisoners of their own perception. They could not see Aslan's gift of the new heaven, for they would not see it. I wonder sometimes if we find ourselves uh, in the weight of our decisions, choosing suspicion instead of trust and love, whether that's in marriage or parenthood, or even our relationship with the church or with God. Parker Palmer, in the book On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Growing Old, talks about um, climbing a mountain. So when you begin climbing a mountain, it is a trivial choice. It's an opportunity to rise up on the mountain. The idea that once you get to the top, you'll have a beautiful view is a tiny joy. But you have a trivial decision. 
As you continue to walk and you get further and further, you feel the weight of your decision to climb the mountain. The air gets thinner. Your uh, legs get heavier. Your body gets tired. But you are reminded of the great joy of the sight that you'll behold when you get to the top of the mountain. And as you get very close to summiting that mountain, everything becomes weighty. The gravity of your decision weighs you down. Your body is tired, but you are less likely to stop because it's no longer a trivial decision. You are deep into the climb, and the reward is just over the horizon. And when you summit the mountain, you're rewarded for that tiny decision in the beginning. That tiny decision to climb a mountain becomes a beautiful, triumphant moment that you can see and experience and love. I believe the gravity, the weight of our decisions, the ability to begin with the end in mind, it is to choose trust and love to believe that the one who created us, redeems us, and sustains us is not trying to catch us in some loophole, but rather wants to give us grace upon grace upon grace, and that our suspicion that makes us try just to be harmless might be the one thing that robs us of the joy of the moment of serving the master. My prayer for us is that we might always do no harm, do all the good we can, and stay in love with God. Because by beginning with the end in mind, we may actually make a difference in the world, and we might actually enjoy it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.